Well, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, and we're going to start reading in verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11. We're kind of jumping in the middle of a text that we've been looking at for the last few weeks here. But Ephesians 4, verse 11. Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And this, this is where we left off and we'll pick it up today. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We have this beautiful picture of the church in Ephesians 4, 1-16. And, and this is the church of which we are part of. This is the body of Christ. And so Jesus is the head and he's, he's supplying the power and he's giving direction to the body as the head. And then gifted people are given by Jesus to the church. And there, there are these gifted leaders that are equipping gifted saints, gifted believers to actively serve the body and to grow the body, this beautiful diversity, this wonderful unity, this healthy growth and maturity, and all of it, Paul's making very clear, is God's doing. He's doing in us and through us. And so these are not, as we've been saying, these are not results that we create or that we achieve on our own. These are gifts of God's grace through Christ. And these results aren't as, as we'll see, they're not just possible in some kind of idyllic setting of the, if you just have just the right circumstances. It's not that under the perfect conditions, you know, societal and, and theological and, 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 you know, within the church and, and in the ideal circumstances, the church can be unified and can grow and can thrive together. It's not the case at all. The, the church isn't like a, a palm tree. Uh, that, that I know people around here, they try to plant palm trees, people that move up from Florida, but that usually doesn't work uh, because palm trees require very specific climate and soil conditions and all these things. It takes a lot to make a palm tree grow where it's not supposed to grow or it's out of its conditions, but that's not the church. The church can grow. It can thrive anywhere. It, it, it can bear fruit in the harshest of environments. And Ephesus, I mean, as we think about this letter that Paul's writing to these believers in Ephesus, it was not some idyllic environment to see a, a healthy church grow and thrive. It, it, it was far from that. It was, it was situated in this grotesquely corrupt culture. All kinds of immorality and idolatry, and, and they were involved in magic arts and all kinds of paganism. It, there was this religious syncretism that had a hold on on people, and there was this blending of elements of Judaism of, 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 uh, uh, and, and the pagan religion of the day, and they were trying to blend these things together. There were racial tensions that were very severe in Ephesus. There was persecution of Christians that was, was rising and increasing dramatically at this time that Paul's writing this letter. And so you and I would look at Ephesus from a 
church planning perspective and a church growth perspective, and we'd say, not a chance. There's no way that a, a strong, healthy church can, can, can survive there. But we'd be, we would be wrong. We would be wrong. And I, and I say all of this because this is a wonderful encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. That it, it should fill, up, fill us with hope and, and, and fresh courage and, and resolve where we sit today. It should draw some of us out of the bunkers that we're sort of living in right now and just kind of hiding away in fear and just trying to hang on. That's not how we should live. We, we live in an increasingly hostile environment. I think we could acknowledge that. Though I would say we still don't have a clue what open hostility toward Christians looks like. There are many believers in the world who are experiencing that even right now. But we, we listen, whatever, whatever, wherever we are, however bad things become, we are not left by the Lord under-equipped for whatever we face. We, Jesus has given us everything we need for His body to to grow, to no matter what kind of soil conditions we happen to be planted in. And so notice, we've, we've talked about this, this transition in, in the letter of Ephesians. And we've not been working through the whole letter. We've just kind of dropped in to the first part of chapter 4. But there's this major transition in chapter 4, verse 1 in this letter. And, and so he's beginning to show the implications of the gospel that he's, he's unpacked in chapters 1 through 3. He's showing that the implications of the gospel in our lives and in the church. But he, but he doesn't do this first through giving this string of commands. We, we maybe assume that that's what happens because we find that in other letters. Like a, there's that turning point in the epistle and then all of a sudden we have these commands. The first command doesn't come until verse 26 of chapter 4. So he's not like, now here's what you need to do then. That's not how he starts. It is, it is shifting. Here's, here are the implications. But, but the focus isn't on initially in chapter 4, of what we are commanded to achieve, the focus is on what Christ has provided and the results then that spring forth from that. And so we are to be active and engaged, not passive, not apathetic. We're to be meaningfully, deliberately, full, full strength engaged in pursuing peace with one another as we saw in verses 1-3 to and laboring to see Christ formed in one another but we must understand that these are the results of Christ's gracious work in us. And that's what its emphasis is here. Also, the emphasis in the text is on what Christ has given to us that we might be who we actually are. As we said, we're, we want to we live out who we are. We want to experience what He's provided for us functionally. And so these are not just results that we achieve on our own. These are Results of the resurrected uh, Jesus and His power working in us as He gives grace and He gives gifts to His church. These are the things that spill forth. And so what does the resurrection power of Jesus look like when it's flowing in a church? When it's flowing in us, brothers and sisters. And that's what we'll see this morning. And so there's three statements. first one is this. Because of Christ, we can remain established in truth. We can remain established in truth. And he states this, I'm stating it positively, but he states it negatively in verse 14. It's not because I'm such an optimist, but I, I think that this gets the sense of what he's, what he's communicating to them. Verse 14, Christ gave, that's kind of the operating verb over this, this phrase, but Christ gave, why? For what purpose? To what result? So that 
we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So he just loads this verse up with these different metaphors here. Four metaphors in just this one verse. Different images that are communicating this beautiful result of Christ's power at work. The reigning Christ giving to the church. And first off, he starts with children. So that we may no longer be children. Now, children, don't take offense here. There's nothing wrong with being children. Uh, he's not saying children, you know, bad, adults, good. That's not the point he's making. There are many places in Scripture in the New Testament when children are set forth as this positive image of, of, of this, is, this is who's part of the kingdom of God. It's children. This is how you get in by coming, becoming like a child. And so that's not it. But what he's saying here is we're not to be children. We're, we're not to, he's, he's speaking of being immature, being undiscerning, spiritually and theologically unstable that's the idea when he says we're no longer to be children uh you 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 can see uh some of these little toddlers go down to the wee walkers room and you'll see instability we have piper bell she's not sitting up here right now but uh she, she's just turned a year old and she's probably getting her legs under her right now and trying to figure out how to walk and but it probably doesn't take much she can get up and then brother or sister come running by or the dog and knock her down she doesn't have stability and, that, and that's the image here and so here he's not talking about physical instability, but spiritual, theological instability. I mean, again, you take that image out of parenting. But what, what are some of our worst fears as parents? This is what drives some of you into this class that's going to begin this morning on fear and anxiety, probably. What do we fear? We fear that our children, because they're immature, because they lack discernment, that they're going to be taken advantage of someone. Some adult that has wrong motives will exploit them. We fear that. I do as a parent. That we fear that their trusting kind of nature, that, that their lack of discernment will be taken advantage of someone who will, who will again, want to, want to do them harm or want to exploit them for some sort of personal selfish gain. Every parent fears that. And I'm not talking about just when they're toddlers, but long after that. So Paul's saying the same thing about the church. Christ has worked. Christ is working. He, he is head. He's giving to the church. He's giving grace. He's giving these leaders and he's, who are equipping the saints for ministry to one another. Why is that? So we won't be immature. So we won't be undiscerning. So that we won't be taken advantage of, the, of by those who deny the truth, who, who might exploit us for, for their own twisted purposes. We're to be established in the truth. And we can be because of Christ. And then he changes the metaphor, uh, just mid-sentence, to a ship being tossed by waves. And, and, and he says, not, <coughs> excuse me, verse, um, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. I don't, I don't think that, 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 it doesn't work to say children being tossed to and fro, but I don't think that's the point. He's just changing metaphors here. Uh, our oldest daughter, Callie, when she was a senior, they did a senior trip for their uh, for their school, their high school, and, and they went on a cruise. And Brooke and I got roped into being chaperones for this cruise. We had never been on a cruise before, and we thought this would it was something we were sort of interested in. Thought maybe this would get a little taste of a very short three-night cruise to the Bahamas and see if this is something we want to do again. Let me just say it's nothing we'll ever want to do again. And uh, 
Some of you, I know you love cruises and don't, please don't try to twist our arm and convince us otherwise. And we just, we just don't buy it. But, um, but part of it is we had very rough seas that first night. I mean, I, I didn't, I, anyway, the boat was rolling. I mean, like the swimming pool was just like, it was like a wave pool just sloshing around, furniture's moving around, people are just staggering around. Uh, and, and, Brooke was sick in bed. I mean, awful sick, kind of seasickness. That's what I think of when I think of this image. Now, that, of course, is not the image that Paul has in mind, of this massive cruise ship, you know, being, you know, knocked around on rough seas. He, he's thinking of this small, probably fishing boat or small passenger boat, rudderless boat, you know, just with just pushed along, propelled along by... Uh, by oars probably and in that that storm in a storm like that the that little boat it's battered it's blown off course it's it's tossed by the waves it's completely at the mercy of the waves that's the image that he has in mind Paul's saying Christ has given he he is giving us what we need so that we don't have to just be rudderless and just tossed around and beaten around and pushed around and, and, and at the, totally at the mercy of the waves that beat against us. No, we can be grounded in truth. We can have firm footing. That's the image. And then he changes the image slightly again. Uh, similar but different to wind. Not carried about by every wind of doctrine. The picture, again, just picture some leaves or some dry straw just blowing in this strong wind, this gale. And so... If you've ever dropped an important piece of paper in on a really windy day, you know, maybe a, a grocery list or something that you've been working on this long list and uh, or, or a you know, receipt that you got to be in reimbursed for your school assignment or something like that. You drop that in the parking lot at school and that wind is just carrying it across the parking lot and you are tearing after that thing. You got to get that. I know everything's digital, but you just imagine the imagery. Uh, and so you're running to chase that down. Paul saying, that's the, that's the person, that's a picture of a person who's not rooted, who's not established in truth, of a church. They're not just, they're just blown around from here to there. And what he's saying is Christ has given us. He has provided because He's gracious and because He loves the church and He's the head of the church. And this is why He descended. Earlier in this chapter we saw He had descended to the lowest parts that He might rise and ascend to the heavens so that He can give these gifts to men and give these gifts to the church and give His grace to us. He's done all of this so that we won't be blown around. Blown around by every wind of doctrine. The New English Bible translates it's every fresh gust of teaching. It's a good image. Now He, he doesn't seem to have in mind any particular false teaching there that they were dealing with and facing in Ephesus, but we know from earlier, and we'll see this in the book of Acts uh, later this fall, in Acts chapter 20, that Paul warned the Ephesian elders of these threats that this is some five to six years earlier than the, than the letter to if the Ephesians was written. But he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul's warned them. And he's saying, he's encouraging them, really, Christ has given you what you need so you can be established in the truth. I'm just blown around. 
by every fresh gust of, of teaching. Christ has given. He continues to give grace. He continues to give gifts to the church that we will be firmly established in the truth so that we won't fall easy prey to every new theological fad. That there, and, and again, there are fresh gusts of teaching that are, that are trying to drive the church off course all the time. And they come packaged in really, in really pretty ways. And they, they, are, they are promoted in, in, in avenues that seem rather benign and through Christian booksellers and Christian media and, and, and all kinds of things. So they can sound, they can appear safe and maybe even helpful and, and, and appealing. And yet, as you understand them, they actually threaten to, to drive us away from those core convictions of the faith. So there's a warning here in this passage that we're, we're always facing these gusts, these winds, these waves. Uh, you know, there, there are these forces that are trying to draw us away and, 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 lead, and lead us to instability by, by false teaching. But listen, there's more than a warning. There is a warning, but there's more than a warning. There's a tremendous encouragement to us here. Get this. And what I mean is it doesn't matter how bad, th- how bad things actually get in the culture in evangelicalism and whatever, the church does not have to retreat and hide. That's the encouragement. Jesus has given us everything we need, not just to survive, but to grow, to be strengthened, to be stable, to be established in truth, brothers and sisters. No matter what the swirling currents are all around us, that's an encouragement. So that's the first thing. Because of Christ, we can be established in truth. Second, because of Christ, we can, we can be built up in love. Built up in love. And you look at verse 15. So rather, rather than being tossed around by deception and led astray by all these, these, these false, false deceptions, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in Christ. Grow up in Christ. And so, Again, in verse 16, the end of verse 16, the Lord Jesus makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so the church matures by growing in truth and growing in love. And so when you hear somebody that's trying to pit truth against love or love against truth, just, just know that, that they, that they are they are unclear about the Bible's teaching about truth and love. Those are not adversaries. They're not competitors or opponents. They're not opposite ends of some spectrum. No. Truth and love, they're partners. They're teammates. They are are teammates in this great work of growth and maturity in the church. That's why when you hear the criticism, you know, oh, this person, they're just too concerned for the truth. Understand, that criticism is at best misguided in terms of its analysis of that of the person and the problem. Is it possible for a person to misunderstand the function of truth? Yes. Is it possible for a person to misunderstand the goal of truth? Absolutely. But is it possible for a person to be too concerned about truth? No, never. And so the church, by God's grace, by Christ's giving work, it's, it's established in truth. We're to be a truth-speaking, truth-believing, truth-confessing 
people together in our Lord's Day gatherings, when you gather as small groups and Sunday school classes and men's and women's Bible studies, when you when you just meet together one-on-one and you send texts to one another and you make phone calls and you gather over coffee and a meal together, the, the truth is, is, is foundational to how we relate to one another. We're always confessing, as Paul says to the Ephesians earlier in this letter, the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. But there are some times when, when we, we who seem to care a lot about truth and and, and, and we don't understand what truth is for. And that's what I think Paul's getting to here. We, we don't understand its function or its purpose. We can hold to and say what is true and defend the truth and do it like jerks, if I could say it in a very colloquial way. So Paul qualifies speaking in truth with in love. So the function of truth, it's fostering it's the fostering of real Christian love. The, the, the goal of truth is this expression of real Christian love. And so the practice of truth, it's always in the context of love. It always aims for love. Now, of course, and again, this could be a message unto its own, but love doesn't always mean, quote, being nice. You know, that's the, the po- popular conception. That's that's what it's been reduced to so often in our culture. Now, does it mean we don't care about uh, courtesy and we just we just run over? That's not what I'm talking about. But it's not. That's not. Love is is speaking. He's saying speaking the truth in love, and sometimes that means saying things that that aren't necessarily pleasant to the hearer in that moment, but they're they're genuinely for their good. We have hearts that are not trying to win an argument. We're not trying to roll over them and prove our point and come out looking smarter than they are. But we genuinely, we love these people. We care. We want what's best for their souls. By God's grace, we want to test our own hearts in this, but we're speaking out of genuine concern for the well-being of the other person and saying what's true in a a kind way, a patient way with the graces of the Spirit on display. doesn't mean it's always received well, but this is what we're called to. It's kind of, it's kind of love, this, this tender, strong, courageous, self-sacrificial love is what Christ produces in us. And this is, and this is what, what, what Paul is saying is Christ, Christ has given. That's the controlling. Christ gave so that, so that we can be established in the truth. And speaking that truth, we could do so in love and so that we're built up in love. This is the vision for the church that he's setting forth. John Stott, he speaks of this, this kind of supposed, and again, I think it's a false dichotomy, and that's what he's getting at, supposed tension between truth and love in his commentary on Ephesians. And he says, he says, Thank God that there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But sometimes they are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, Their muscles ripple, and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Some of us are feeling, oh, okay, yeah, mm, I see that tendency myself. But then he goes on. Others make the opposite mistake. They're determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love, but in order to do so, are prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of the Bible. Both these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. 
listen, the good news is that we have been given everything we need for this balance in the Lord. I mean, Jesus, it's, a, it's Christ who is, who is full of grace and truth. That's, that's the one who is working in us, who is the head of the church, who's growing us, who's, who's the mastermind and the, and the implementer of all of these, this beautiful picture that we're talking about here. He's full of grace and He's full of truth. It's the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who is called the Spirit of truth. And He's producing in us the, this fruit. And the, what's the first expression of that fruit? It's love. It's love. And so... Listen, because of Christ, we, we can be established in truth and we can be built up in love. That's the, the, that's the atmosphere that we're going to thrive on, church. That's what needs to be expressed by us. And then third and finally, because of Christ, we can, we can mature together as a community. We can grow. We can mature together as a community. So verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now that's a big mouthful, isn't it? And I will break that down. But first thing I want you to see, verse 15, is the way we mature as a community is by growing independence in dependence on Christ comprehensively. Notice what he says. In every way. What does that mean? In every way. Every aspect of our life together, brothers and sisters. We're to grow up into Him in this awareness of how completely and utterly and totally dependent we are upon Christ. Into Him who is the head. Into Christ. And so he, he says, just in case you missed that, into Christ. Jesus is is both the ultimate source of our growth. And if you've missed that in the last three weeks, I, I'm sorry, I failed. And I hope that's been clear. He's the source of our growth, but He's also the one in whom, into whom we grow. We, we need to always be growing, not just as individuals in this church, but together as a body in this conscious, real dependence upon Jesus as our head. We see we need Him for everything. Everything. We can do nothing apart from Him. We, the, we, we're like the vine and the branch. We, we have to have Him. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. And it's clear from this passage, I hope it's getting it's clear, it's, Jesus isn't just some passive head. He is, he is actively leading and directing and providing for and empowering and equipping the ministry of the church. Providing the church with all that it needs to reach, to grow and to reach maturity. As in this dependence upon Christ, again, it's not just something we do on our own or strive for on our own. It's something that happens in us together. And so notice, this is where the sentence structure gets really complex. Verse 16. But it's very, it's very powerful when you break it down. And so you'll notice, if so you uh, grammarian, you English nerds out there, just notice verse 16. You can see this in your English Bibles. Um, the, the whole body, that, that phrase, at least it is in ESV, that's the subject. That serves as the subject for a ber- verb that doesn't appear until I think it's 20 words later in the English Standard Version. So that's what makes this sentence kind of a bear. What is he saying? There's this big parenthetical comment in the middle. But 
But the, but the simple sentence is this. It's from Christ, the whole body makes the body grow and builds itself up in love. From Christ, the whole body makes itself grow and builds itself up in love. And then there's this parenthesis in the middle that explains how. Okay, if I've lost you, try to come back with me here. But the, the point is this, is that the body is indirectly, mind you, we'll come back to that, but is indirectly causing its own growth. The body is making itself grow. That's what he's saying. Now again, the whole, that whole clause is relative, as we've seen, meaning that our growth is ultimately into Christ and it's empowered by Christ and, and it's through Christ that we grow. And so the body is, is able to indirectly cause its own growth because of Christ the head who's supplying everything we need. And so here's the picture. We, we receive this nourishment from Christ who is the head as members of His body. And the body is strengthened as we serve the body and serve other members of the body with the strength and the, with the grace that we've received from Christ. And the body is built up. That's what he's saying. And he describes the, the nature of this body with these, these two participles. And it's being joined and being held together. Those are the participles. And they're both passive. Meaning that they're the action, it's, it, they're acted upon. And so suggesting, this is saying God is the one who's joining us together. God is the one who's holding together the various members. This is the oneness that we have. We, we possess it already. And we've, as we've talked about a few weeks ago, this is, this is it. We, we, are, we are being joined. We are being held together by another. By the Lord. And then, and then he gets really specific. He talks about every joint or every ligament that has the idea of, of every, every point of contact. When we look around this room, there are, I don't know how many people are here today, 140, 150 or so points of contact. Every, every life, every relationship, there's, there's a point of contact. Of just being reminded, thinking of the, the funeral yesterday and, and seeing these people I haven't seen in a long time and hearing some of these stories. These are, these are points of contact. That the Lord has orchestrated. Every, every point of contact every, between members of the church, it becomes this opportunity to serve one another, to equip one another, to be equipped by Christ to do so. So, again, what I'm, the point here is you can't miss the corporate nature of the church's growth and life and maturity. The maturity, the growth that each of us experiences uh, of Christ and His giving, it's not by ourselves, it's not for ourselves. It is with and it is for the whole body. Which means my personal growth isn't first on my agenda when I come here on the Lord's Day. But, but gathering with the church and, and the means that God has provided for growth within the body it, it, the point is the well-being of the whole body. As I grow, the, the, as the body grows and the members rely upon Christ who's the head, the whole body builds itself up in love and reliance upon Christ. Listen, by God's grace, by King Jesus who's descended and who has ascended and now reigns and now He's giving gifts and He's given to the church grace and He's given leaders to the church who are equipping the saints by by Christ's work, listen, we can remain established 
in truth. We can. No matter how fierce the cultural or um, theological winds of falsehood howl, come at us. We can continue being built up in love together as we're just so overwhelmed by the reality of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, which is what he's grounding us in. We can, be, we can keep on maturing as community together, life together, life on life, as, we, as each member of the body supports the growth of the whole body of Christ. This is, this is what Paul is saying. These are, these are the results that spill out from the resurrection power of Christ in us. This is what he's given for. This is what he's giving towards. It's a beautiful picture. And I want us to keep that, that picture in mind of the, these results of the resurrection power of Christ within us. 